This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is the third episode in our five-part series discussing the life of Jonathan Swift, as well as the four voyages of his most famous character, Lemuel Gulliver. In episode one, we discussed primarily Swift's personal life and most important relationships. Swift was first and foremost a Christian minister. He was also a product of the Enlightenment. Uh, Although not in a way we would think many times, Swift questioned modernism and the capacity of human reason. And science in Swift's day was generally concerned with physics and astronomy. And Swift didn't uh, necessarily view those disciplines as valuable to the betterment of the lives of his parishioners. For Swift, science gives us a false sense of progress, but doesn't necessarily provide a better society or better human conditions or even better humans. And I also want to point out another position of Swift's uh, that is specific to his time period, but worth thinking about today. Swift was very cynical of wealth and wealth that was earned really divorced or not connected from the land. Uh, and the reason for this is when you own land, you take on the responsibilities of land ownership. And uh, this is different from when you build wealth through speculation or trade. And Swift was suspicious of how this would mold the character of the wealthy and what kind of uh, sense of social responsibility that would bring. And it's not the same as living in a place and investing in a place. And he saw wealth made that was not grounded to actual physical land as corrupting and vulgar because it, you know, it didn't inherently um, force social responsibilities connected to the space where you yourself uh, occupy and or any particular space on this earth. And, you know, on one level, it seems like a dated idea, but honestly, I think it's worth revisiting as we rethink how this book applies to our world. Um, Lots of companies claim to be socially responsible, but the decisions they make in that name by nature of our world have nothing to do with where they live, their families and their communities. And I'm not saying Swift is necessarily right, but I'm not saying he's wrong. (laughs) 
You're not saying. (laughs) I'm also saying it's an interesting idea to think about and one that I think Thomas Jefferson might have some parallel agreement with. You and your bromance with Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) Well, it is interesting, but... Getting away from uh, Swift's real world for a minute, let's think about our hero, Lemuel Gulliver, and his fantasy existence. Gulliver, and I will say that's got a lot of R's and V's, which makes it hard for me to (laughs) say, but Gulliver in Voyage 1 is dropped off in this strange land we call Lilliput by reason of an accident. Maybe we could say it's human carelessness. Either way, it wasn't on purpose. That in itself sets a certain tone of haplessness, maybe even, to the voyage. It's an oopsie from the start. The The tone of the first voyage is actually very light. We're introduced to an efficient but, you know, humorously petty and ultimately innately self-serving, cruel, and deadly race of miniature humans. Gulliver isn't really seriously threatened by them, though, until the very end because he's so much bigger than they are. And a point to highlight, but it does color his entire relationship with everyone there. It's nice to be bigger. I wouldn't know, but it seems nice to be bigger. (laughs) (laughs) And you're innately more powerful. Gulliver is naive for sure, but he's also really full of goodwill the whole time. He wants to help. He's kind. He's gentle. And... He's also rather boring. Well, that's true. He is uh, completely unimaginative. And he can't distinguish between details uh, that we should care about versus the ones that he really should skip in telling us about. That also is worth mentioning because it shows us that he really doesn't create hierarchies in his mind, distinguishing between facts that matter and those that don't. And that's a skill you have to socially navigate in any community if you're going to have friends. But he says it's all done in the name of being totally transparent with his reader. Anyway, he ends his first voyage coming home. And when he gets back, we see that he desires all the same things he wanted before he left. He wants to advance in English society. He wants what we all want, right? Upward mobility, better finances. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's what everyone wants. But it's interesting that his interactions with the Lilliputians didn't really create any kind of crisis of conscience. He doesn't seem to have given his experience there much long-term thought. And so, I mean, no long-term thought at all, because two months later, he wants to leave again. He claims he's restless. Hmm. And, of course, just as uh, we begin Voyage 2, we are hit with that personality trait of Gulliver's in that he gives us way more information (laughs) than I want or you want or anyone wants, uh, which is an interesting feature of the writing style. So we set out again in a different direction into the sea, and if I'm following all these directions correctly... We end up in what was at that time an unexplored Northwest Passage today that we might identify as Alaska. Uh, but he gets there in the most indirect way imaginable. He stops by the Cape of Good Hope, which is in South Africa, as well as the Straits of Madagascar. He hits Indonesia before eventually landing two pages later in the Arctic Ocean by way of the Great Tartary. I mean, what a tour that was. And all of this uh, makes him appear to definitely be observant and even intelligent, but at the same time, I don't know, you know, he appears directionless, too. He's at the very least uncomplicated and unreflective as a human being. And what is going on with all this circumnavigating the globe for no clear reason? 
Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Unless the wandering is just a reflection of how many of us do actually navigate our world wandering. I don't know. I'm speculating. What I think is pretty clear, though, is that he is an everyman. He's above average in his intelligence, but in many ways, he's just an average guy, the kind of guy who doesn't have to question a lot of stuff philosophically. Another thing to note is that he does always brag about himself, and increasingly so, to the point that it starts to stand out more and more. It can be actually funny uh, because, you know, it's always funny when people brag, obviously, about themselves, unless it's annoying, and sometimes it can be both. Uh, but truly accomplished and great people rarely do that. So to me, if you're overly bragging, it's a sign that, as we say in the South, you ain't all that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I had a, a student who came up to me one day in class. This might be a tangent, but this is a really great student. He was a great athlete. He's the quarterback of our football team. He had gotten accepted into Vanderbilt. That's a very prestigious college around here. He's a very accomplished student. The problem was he knew it. In fact, he thought he was more accomplished than he actually was. I mean, he's still in high school. So one day he comes up to me and he says, Mrs. Bronner, that was my name at the time. I learned something about myself yesterday. And I replied, you know, really? What did you learn? And he said, I learned that I'm amazing at all the sports. And, you know, I said, you're amazing at all the sports? And he said, yes. After school, I went outside and played tennis. And I was surprised that I was Im immediately amazing at it. Then I understood. I'm amazing at all of them. <laughs> I said, what else could I say? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it made me laugh. Poor guy. He is good at sports, but he's not a pro athlete. He's smart, but he's not Einstein. And I don't recall that he played any college sports, even though he was amazing at all sports. Uh, no, he didn't. <laughs> well, he is a, a Lemuel Gulliver, slightly accomplished, but really unreflective and unwise. What a character. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and Swift points out that our skewed perspective of ourselves and our world and both voyages, both one and two, and he does it through physical size as he highlights our, our, our perspective as this instrument of satire through size. Now, I want to remind us what satire is. Satire is when we use humor. And what, what do we mean by humor? Well, we, we use irony, we use exaggeration, and other kind of um, extreme strategies. And we use these to make fun of something or someone. But we can make fun of things and not be satirical. We can make fun of things and be cruel. Satire is characterized because the point of poking fun is to change our perspective, to make something look ridiculous because we want to create positive changes. He thinks we can't see something, or Swift thinks we can't see something, so he wants to exaggerate it to the point that we can no longer be blind to it like we've been before. So that's what motivates a satirist, not just the laugh, not just the humor. Every parody movie isn't satire. Most of them aren't. But before we get into Voyage 2, uh, let me say this, and I think it's worth pointing out again. Swift gets darker with each adventure, and we see this introduced when Gulliver arrives at each land. In Voyage 1, it's an accident. In Voyage 2, he's stranded there because of the cowardice of his shipmates. 
you pay attention when we get to Voyage 3, he's captured then abandoned by pirates. And then Voyage 4, his crew mutinies, seizes his ship, and then leaves him on the island. So this is a darker and darker progression that we're supposed to notice. Hmm. I would say that does get darker and meaner by degrees. (laughs) As do the voyages themselves. Here, Voyage 2 is set up to be the antithesis to Voyage 1. It's the exact opposite. And the irony works on a couple of levels. So there's one way to read this voyage very personally. Uh, And what way does my size in the world affect how I look at humans around me, especially those who are smaller than I am? And now, again, we're talking metaphorically. So we can think about this book and how our metaphorical or maybe even our physical size uh, informs our understanding of the world. And and I know that, uh, you know, when I say size matters, I'm throwing out some sexual innuendo, and that's on purpose. That's a nod to Swift because that's as far as we're going. This man loves him some sexual innuendo in Voyage 2, but don't get excited because this podcast will not point it out. If you're interested in that, I don't blame you. It's quite interesting. You're going to have to go read it for yourself, students. Some of you are sitting in class. So size alters our perspective of the world. Well, you know, another word for that might be stature. Um, Our place in this world absolutely colors how we understand the world around us. In um, Lilliput, Gulliver has power whether he thinks about it or not because he's big, he's enormous, and he operates from a place of kindness and gentleness because he can afford to. Uh, this is not the case in Bromdingnag. Try to say that three times fast. <laughs> Bromdingnag. I was lucky to get it right the first time. You know, because of his size, Gulliver is stripped of all of his personal power. Yes, and when that happens, he's stripped of other things as well. He's stripped of his masculinity, of his sexuality, and ultimately his humanity that isn't even acknowledged by most of the people there. He's looked down as a lesser being. And even if they treat him with kindness, and they do, doing that is an innate cruelty because you're not viewing another person as an equal. And what's more, because of how this world is structured, he will never, he can never have stature in this society. So in this case, it's literally a physical impossibility. Today, you know, many of us complain, I don't have enough opportunity, or others may have more opportunity than I do, and that's probably true. But that's not the same as having a zero. Swift takes away not just his stature, but all future potential of ever having any. And we're going to see him strive and strive for respect from the beginning to the end. So the question emerges on a personal level. How does something like that affect a person? What if you had no promise of growing, no possibility of professional growth or respect, no possibility of any equal relationships in your personal life, no possibility of being anything but a joke in your community? What does that do? Because this is Gulliver's reality. He ultimately finds physical comfort. He lives in luxury at one point. But he will forever be insignificant, small, and by virtue of that, vulnerable, always at risk of endless, unforeseeable threats, which Mm. ultimately takes him away. What a huge perspective shift from (laughs) voyage number one. You know, another thing uh, Swift notes is that because he's small, 
He sees other people's flaws in ways those of equal status can't see them. Uh, it's ugly, and there's nothing he can do about it. In fact, he doesn't even want to see it, but he does. Yes, and again, this is where Swift makes it funny by using sexual humor. I mean, who really wants to see a cancerous breath breast up close? But Gulliver's world is very dangerous, and it's unpredictable. In order just to survive... He has to find within himself a lot of moral courage, a lot of physical courage. And this is something he really didn't have to do in Lilliput. Life is harder. It requires more intelligence to live in a world where you are insignificant. It's easier to live if you're powerful. You know, uh, it also requires a lot harder work and more risk-taking. You know, the only reward he ever receives for all of this hard work and courage is not dying. (laughs) You know, he's never going to be a, a Nardak or a Duke in Brondignag. So, you know, there's no upward mobility. It's an interesting perspective for Swift to try to really enforce at this point. Yes. And this is the world from the lowest rung. And Swift ultimately concludes with a strange perspective that the smaller you are, the meaner you're likely to be, which as a small person, I very much <laughs> resent. It's, But it's also not... Gulliver's starting place in chapter one, because here at the beginning in Brongingdag in chapter one, he says this, human creatures are observed to be more savage and cruel in proportion to their bulk. In other words, the bigger you are, the meaner you are, which could I expect but to be a morsel in the mouth of the first among these enormous barbarians that should happen to seize me. Undoubtedly, philosophers are in the right when they say that nothing is great or little otherwise than by comparison. (laughs) But is that true? Uh, You you know, we really don't get a straight answer on this. Um, This disproportionate size thing is a two-edged sword, and the people of this land are disproportionate, uh, too. They are ten times our size, and in some ways they really are enlightened and better people than we are. And We'll we'll see with Gulliver's famous discussion with the king in Chapter 6 that they are more rational in their social structures. They seem to have a higher sense of personal morality. They don't war with each other. Their laws are simple and less corrupt. And, you know, they don't eat Gulliver. Thankfully. Yeah. In fact, let me read uh, how they pick him up. With the caution of one who endeavors to lay hold on a small, dangerous animal in such a manner that it shall not be able either to scratch or to bite him. Uh, except Gulliver's view of them is, is like a microscope. He sees everything in way too much detail. So it, if we see ourselves in these giants, uh, what we can obviously observe is that we're only you know beautiful people if you don't look too closely. <laughs> and uh, we're only good people when we recognize each other as equals, but when we don't, we aren't. Uh, you know, and I only bring this up because as a historical curiosity, the microscope was something that was new to emerge during Swift's time period and would have been very much on his mind. And here in the story, Gulliver is a microscope. So are you saying that it was invented during this period? Oh, no, no. Uh, you know, two Dutch inventors invented it back in 1590. But, you know, as with all technology and inventions at first, they're not accessible uh, normally except to maybe the scientific community. And what's interesting about the mi- microscopes during Swift's lifetime 
is that they eventually became easy to afford and very common, you know, a lot like cell phones of today. And in the beginning, uh, only tech people had them, then only rich people had them, then everyone got one. That's the same thing with microscopes in the 17th century and during Swiss life. Uh, they were popular with women. They were actually a fad. Uh, and, and this irked a few male scientists to know him. <laughs> Specifically, Robert Hooke, who built his wealth and reputation at the end of the 17th century uh, by being the first person to visualize a microorganism through a microscope. And that was a big deal. And uh, Hooke claimed, and this is an obvious untruth, but I'm sure he believed it, that by the help of microscopes, there is nothing so small as to escape our inquiry. Uh, anyway, over time, microscopes actually became kind of recreational. Uh, they were affordable. They were portable. They were fun. Women were buying what they called pocket microscopes. And in one of Swift's letters to Stella, he says this, I doubt it will cost me 30 shillings for a microscope. You know, and then he goes on to describe it like uh, I might do if I were buying you something you couldn't see. So he says, shall I buy it or no? Tis not the great bulky ones, nor the common little ones, to impale a louse, saving your presence upon a needle's point, but of a more exact sort and clearer to the sight with all its equipage and a little trunk that you may carry in your pocket. Tell me, sir, should I buy it or not for you? I wish we had Stella's response. I bet she said, of course. Well, <laughs> I want to give him kudos for using the word equipage. I know, it's cute, but... Uh, did they really look at lice? That's <laughs> oh yes, they did. You know why? Because they're cute. Because they have <laughs> yes, exactly. They were the new pet. Uh, no, you know, there's foul. a lot of records of people looking at lice. Uh, lice were a common problem, and I can only imagine that they were interested in those little buggers and putting them under the microscope. Oh, gross. Well, uh, like I said, there are a lot of layers to Swift, but let's get back to Brogdenag. Uh, if we compare part one and two just broadly, not microscopically, oh, a few differences are obvious. Voyage one has two countries. Voyage two just has one. Lilliput has a bad king, and the people are malicious. Brogdenag has a good king and the society is much less aggressive in voyage one gulliver does stuff he's powerful in voyage two things are done to gulliver he's powerless in voyage one gulliver wants to make peace in voyage two he wants to make war and he offers the king gunpowder as a way to gain status and of course there's the ending in voyage one gulliver leaves on his own terms in voyage two We'll see he's taken away by a bird with no control at all. <laughs> Did you just give away the story? <laughs> well, to be honest, there's not much of a plot line in Voyage 2. And that may be why it's not one of the more popular voyages. We're basically observing and taking notes on a society that is bigger than ours, better than ours, less corrupt. The institutions are simpler. But one of Swift's points is that even though society is better here at the institutional level, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are better by being bigger. The people in Brondingdag are no better, they're no worse, but they're no better than average Lilliputians or 17th century Europeans or maybe modern day people anywhere on the globe. They will react to finding the tiny little guy pretty much like we might when the farmer and his wife find him uh their re reaction is surprise the wife screams one's runs away and i quote as women in england do at the sight of a toad or a spider 
After dinner, they give Gulliver to their one-year-old child, and he proceeds to put Gulliver in his mouth, just like our babies would. Of course, again, this is our first boob joke of the chapter because the nurse pulls out a breast that's six feet large for the baby to nurse, and Gulliver describes it in vivid microscopic detail. Uh, I guess that's a nod to all of the microscopic scope uh obsessed girls around <laughs> but anyway they treat gulliver kindly but they objectify him immediately and when they do that they dehumanize him and that is what gulliver hates more than anything well you know it's what all of us hate if if we can't have our humanity then nothing else matters well, I get it. I mean, I, I remember never looking my age when I was a kid, and every once in a while someone would come over and pat me on the head. I hated that. I can still cringe. <laughs> <laughs> mm, well, by Chapter 2, um, Gulliver has been given to the farmer's nine-year-old daughter, <laughs> Glumdoglitch, <laughs> which translates into being little nurse, but, you know, she's 40 feet tall. Well, and let me point out, she gives Gulliver a name, Grildrig. <laughs> and this name is another example of Swift amusing himself with endless wordplay. Because if you say Grildrig fast enough over and over again, it's supposed to sound like girl thing. So Gulliver in Voyage 2 is a girl thing. He's a doll. He's a toy. I know we could get into discussion of misogyny in the text, and there's tons of articles that do that. But no. Um, there's no question that Swift, for his day, uh, holds women in high regard, and that's not the point we want to make. But there's also no question that women in his society were definitely lower than men. So being a girl thing, a grill drink, would not be something any man would ever want. Swift mocks women on equal terms with mocking men, for sure, and I don't know. It's fair play. For Swift... Uh, women are not protected species. They're fair game, and we can see this with some of the humor in the text. Well, and, and we see uh, the good farmer does what we all do. Uh, when we view others as things lesser than ourselves, uh, he exploits them. He doesn't even think about it. Uh, he doesn't see treating Gulliver as the same as everyone else, and Gulliver isn't the same. He's lesser. When he realizes people will pay to see him, uh, he takes Gulliver on the road. And Gulliver performs ten times a day, and everyone loves his act. And Gulliver's learned to talk, and people love that. He's a sensation. In some ways, you know, it kind of reminds me how Elvis Presley's manager treated him, put him on the road until he couldn't do it anymore. Well, yeah, except Elvis loved it. I'm not sure Gulliver's having any fun. <laughs> well, true, there is that. And uh, Gulliver works to the point that the farmer thinks he's going to die. And the queen wants to buy him anyway. So Gulliver is sold for 1,000 pieces of gold. Now, let me add, uh, Swift hated slavery in all of its forms. Uh, and Gulliver is a slave, even if he's going to be living in a palace and being tended to by a nurse. The queen observed my coldness, and when the farmer was gone out of the apartment, asked me for the reason. I made bold to tell her majesty that I owed no other obligation to my late master than his not dashing out the brains of a poor harmless creature found by chance in his field, which obligation was ample recompense for the gain he had made in showing me through half the kingdom and the price he now had sold me for, that the life I had since led was laborious enough to kill an animal of ten times my strength, that thy, my health was much impaired by the continual drudgery of inner 
entertaining the rabble every hour of the day, and that if my master had not thought my life in danger, her majesty would not have gotten so cheap a bargain. But as I was out of fear of being ill-treated under the protection of so great and good an empress, the ornament of nature, the darling of the world, the delight of the subjects, the phoenix of the creations, he sounds like a Lilliputian. <laughs> so I hoped my late master's apprehensions would appear to be groundless, for I already found my spirits to revive by the influence of her most august presence. Well, uh, I want to note that a lot of what we see in these chapters between Gulliver being found in his conversation with the king in chapter 6 is really about personal identity, which I think is a great point of view to take on this. Uh, When we get to the chapters with the king, it's blatantly political, but before then there is a lot here about stature and identity and Gulliver has been totally stripped of his identity and therefore his um, his self-esteem. And you already pointed out that the one-year-old put him in his mouth and he's been given to a nine-year-old girl as a toy. Also that he's forced to perform on command, but it goes on and on and on. He's purchased by the queen for her amusement. Uh, he's going shopping with the ladies, being carried around in a box from store to store. You know, also let me uh, add a historical note here uh, that going to stores is a new thing at this point in history. I mean, the world's transitioning from shopping in outside markets to indoor stores and women of status could be dropped off at different stores. Oh my. And everyone could watch them go in and out with their purchases. And in this case with Gulliver, um, <laughs> he's an accessory. Gulliver who fancies himself a worldly and enlightened man of science, uh, isn't just a commodity, but he has to battle rats. And then the maids pick up the dead rats with a tong and toss it out a window. He's brained by a walnut thrown by a schoolboy. Uh, the queen's dwarf is constantly after him, dropping him into a large bowl of cream where he had to swim for his life. And the flies trouble him and leave their excrement behind. And the wasp steal his cake. And he displays his courage, you know, by attacking them. And he's pummeled by apples and a dog picks him up in his mouth and the birds steal his food, but then they ignore him while hunting for worms. And uh, he's almost drowned by a frog. I mean, this is a bad thing. It is. (laughs) And of course, the worst is the monkey who snatches him and holds him as a nurse does. And I quote Swift here. As a nurse doth a child, she is going to suckle. I was almost choked with the filthy stuff the monkey crammed (laughs) down my throat. I mean, the situations are funny and ridiculous, but not to Gulliver. I mean, he hates being a toy and object. And, uh, you know, so once again, our self-esteem comes from uh, our stature and our community. And Gulliver has zero. So what do you think that means? Well, first, um, you know, we know it's not healthy and it results in sadness and depression and anxiety and anger and shame and a whole host of negative emotions. Uh, but also know when we are attacked like this, we often will do exactly what Gulliver does. He fights this sense of personal nothingness and humiliation by suppressing the injury and bragging. And that's what we often do. Notice how much he brags on himself. Notice how much he also brags on England. Um, it's not patriotism that's driving his assertions, but it's it's his own sense of worth. And he's really striving to try to find value. Well, let's look back to this motif of seeing again. Seeing in the world. It was a big deal in Voyage 1, and it's a big deal here. And as I read from the first chapter already, Gulliver says, nothing is great or little otherwise than by comparison. 
And the longer Gulliver stays in this land, his perspective naturally of everything is going to skew again, but this time in the opposite direction. He sees himself as smaller than he really is. He compensates by bragging excessively, but that's not how he sees himself. He also compensates by screaming. Here, in order to be heard, uh, he has to scream. But he doesn't stop when he gets picked up by sailors. He, he can't even tell that he's screaming. His view of the world is skewed because he sees himself so small. And from the outside, it makes him look crazy. <laughs> well, indeed, and in real life, it does, too. So uh, there's that's one way of looking at the voyage, which I think is a very good way, this personal way of looking at our stature. Uh, but it's not the only way. And I think uh, Swift had mostly in mind the politics of the second voyage. And it's not about political parties. It's not about rivalries between countries. This time it's about how a governing body treats its own people. Swift makes this crossover in the chapters uh, where Gulliver and the king talk, and they go back and forth talking about the English government. But the crossover culminates when Gulliver offers to give him the secret for gunpowder. This is an interesting use of a satirical technique that we call defamiliarization. In other words, you describe something that's actually familiar, but you defamiliarize it. You make it sound unfamiliar to the point that we can figure it out what it is, but you make it sound ridiculous. And in this case, Swift wants to highlight our fascination with warfare and our love of gunpowder. In hopes to ingratiate myself farther into His Majesty's favor, I told him of an invention discovered between three and four hundred years ago to make a certain powder into a heap of which the smallest spark of fire falling would kindle the whole in a moment, although it were as big as a mountain, and make it all fly up in the air together with a noise and agitation greater than thunder, that a proper quantity of this powder rammed into a hollow tube of brass or iron, according to its bigness, would drive a ball of iron or lead with such violence and speed that nothing else was able to sustain its force that the largest balls thus discharged would not only destroy whole ranks of an army at once, but batter the strongest walls of the ground, sink down ships with a thousand men in each to the bottom of the sea, and when linked together by a chain, would cut through mass and rigging, divide hundreds of bodies in the middle, and lay all those waste before them, that we often put this powder into large hollow balls of iron and discharge them by an engine into some city we were besieging, which would rip up the pavements, tear the houses to pieces, burst and throw splinters on every side, dashing out the brains of all who came near. Uh, that I knew the ingredients very well, which were cheap and common. I understood the manner of compounding them and could direct his workmen how to make these tubes of a size proportional to all other things in his majesty's kingdom, and the largest need not be above a hundred feet long, twenty or thirty of which tubes, charged with the proper quantity of powder and balls, would batter down the walls of the strongest town in his dominions, and in a few hours destroy the whole metropolis, if ever it should pretend to dispute his absolute commands. This I humbly offer to his majesty as a small tribute of acknowledgement in return for so many marks that I had received of his royal favor and protection. <laughs> Well, of course, 
we all know what he's talking about. He's talking about war. He's talking about violence, gun violence, you know, bombs. And it's terrible. And what he's saying is absolutely true. And you're supposed to think, why would anyone want to do that? <laughs> but, you know, we know that whoever owns the gunpowder controls the world. And as Swift tells us in this same voyage, uh, that the whole race of mankind can be reduced to, and I quote, the nobility contending for power, the people for liberty, and the king for absolute dominion. I think that's a fantastic way to, to phrase <laughs> all that. It's an interesting way to reduce the world. And I might add, is the exact same conclusion Machiavelli came to. <laughs> they weren't wrong. Yeah, but in this case, he adds weapons as a means for making this a reality. Whoever controls the gunpowder wins. We can make this application of our day if we want to. Uh, but going back to history, let's understand the historical context that would make Swift say something like this. Well, you know, there, there are a lot of different things we can talk about. Uh, but first, the conditions of Ireland during the time Swift was dean in Dublin were not good if you were Irish. And of course, uh, Swift is not ethnically Irish. He was born and he lived in Ireland, but he's ethnically English. And uh, by religion, he's Anglican. He was also well-paid, but this was not what he saw when he walked out the door of his church. Uh, the world of the Irish was appalling. Thousands of men and women and children suffered homelessness because of crop failures and rising prices and unemployment and you know many restrictions imposed by the British government. Uh, the government was exploitative and controlling, and uh, one man who Swift held responsible and could not stand was Prime Minister Robert Walpole, or Flimnap from Voyage <laughs> 1. You know, uh, Swift wasn't the only one to hate that guy. Uh, most everyone in Great Britain did, by the way. He was incredibly corrupt. He lived above the law. He didn't live by the ethics he demanded of others, uh, you know, or even the moral standards of his day. And he was openly promiscuous, sleeping with all kinds of women, and he didn't even conceal his behavior. He was married but had a public mistress. He did marry one of his mistresses, but he had others and had children with them. And, you know, in fact, openly, he had at least three illegitimate children and one whose mother was never publicly identified. And, you know, this, this flagrant assault on public standards was insulting in itself. But if he had been an ethical administrator, maybe people would have let that go. But he wasn't. I mean, he notoriously sacrificed the public good for his own personal wealth and desire for power. And, you know, one contemporary has called him a monster of corruption. You know, Jonathan Swift wrote a poem about him. I want to read it because it's kind of funny. But he says this. With favor and fortune fastidiously blessed, he's loud in a laugh, he's coarse in his jest, a favor and fortune, unmerited vain, a sharper in trifles, a dupe in the main, of virtue and worth by profession, a giber, of juries and sentence, the bully and briber. In the name of that poem, the character of Sir Robert Walpole. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty personal, don't you think? He's not trying to hide it. No, you know, uh, Swift was about the neglect of the Irish people and the corruption of the prime minister. And in Voyage 2, 
Um, the good and reasonable king of Brondingnag goes on a tirade about how corrupt England is. And, you know, Swift really cuts loose and, and pretty much openly attacks Prime Minister Walpole's person as well as his policies. And he's mad about uh, the government's overspending and how that affects the regular people. He's mad about the fraud in the elections. He's mad about Walpole's bribing of the members of parliament. He's angry about um, his use of armed forces. Well, if we're going to look at the broad theme here, he sees the governing class manipulating laws that were originally intended to be good, but they use them to do things that are self-serving. They manipulate the originally intent to justify what they want. And one way they can do this is they make the laws so long and convoluted, no one can read or understand them. And so one thing that he says there about Brogdingdong is Brogdingnag is that in their country no law can be longer than the 20 letters of the alphabet. I wish we had that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because that's not how most legislators write things. Swift attacked the practice of the long and laborious and confusing laws and he says and I quote Nature was degenerative in these latter declining ages of the world and can now produce only small abortive births in comparison of those in ancient times. He said it was very reasonable to think that not only that the species of men were originally much larger, but they also must have been giants in former ages, which, as it is asserted by history and tradition, it hath been confirmed by huge bones and skulls casually dug up in several parts of the kingdom far exceeding the common dwindling of men in our days. He argued that the very laws of nature absolutely required we should have been made in the beginning of a size more large and robust, not so liable to destruction from every little accident of a tile falling from a house or a stone. For this way of reasoning, the author drew several moral applications useful in the conduct of life. So, there he goes. He's attacking short people again. <laughs> Except, obviously, he's being metaphorical. It's metaphorical. You know, <laughs> you know and, and the King's conclusions are really Swift's conclusions on the state of affairs in his own home country. Yeah, I think it's this is the passage that everybody knows from Section 2. This is the end of his conclusions. My little friend Grildrig, you have made a most admirable panegyric upon your country. You have clearly proved that ignorance, idleness, and vice are the proper ingredients for qualifying a legislator, that laws are best explained, interpreted, and applied by those whose interests and abilities lie in perverting, confounding, and eluding them. I observe among you some lines of an institution which, in its original, might have been tolerable, but these half-erased and the whole wholly blurred and blotted by corruptions. It doth not appear from all you have said how any one perfection is required toward the procurement of any one station among you, much less that men are ennobled on account of their virtue, that priests are advanced for their piety or learning, or soldiers for their conduct or valor, or judges for their integrity, or senators for their love of their country, or counselors for their wisdom. As for yourself, you who have spent the greatest part of your life in traveling, I am well disposed to hope you may hitherto have escaped many vices of your country 
century, but by what I have gathered from your own relation and the answers I have with much pain ringed and extorted from you, I cannot but conclude the bulk of your natives to be the most pernicious race of little odious vermin that nature ever suffered to crawl upon the surface of the earth. Wow. (laughs) You know, I think I can see why people have kind of skipped over this voyage. It's a bit of a diatribe. Well... Yeah, it does. It, he goes on. It, but it, I will say it ends on a softer note. The whole last chapter is about him getting home, and it's kind of funny. He gets rescued by sailors after being stolen by the eagle, as you've already pointed out. His perspective is so skewed. He sees everything uh, as being much smaller than it really is, including himself. He yells. He calls everyone pygmies. He hugs his wife at her knees. He couldn't even see his daughter because he's always looking 60 feet in the air. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I notice he's also made another financial fortune on this journey as well. Oh, yes. Always climbing upward. At least that's how he acts, even if that is not how he talks about himself. Sweet Gulliver. He still doesn't make good judgments. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, next voyage he'll have another shot at it. Let's see if it gets better. But for now, thanks for listening to our discussion on Gulliver's time in Bromdignag. Um, I won't miss trying to pronounce that name. No. As always, look for our listening guides on our website if you're a teacher or a student of English. And please share about our podcast with a friend today or this week and give us a good rating. Check us out on YouTube or Spotify. Subscribe. And uh, if you like merchandise, get yourself a magnet for your fridge or a sticker for your computer at howtolovelitpodcast.com. Peace out. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.